Hi, guys. <laughs> Welcome to the first episode of Beyond the Talk, a new podcast formed in conjunction with the independently organized event, TEDxUF, determined to dive deeper into the talks that you know and love. Through these conversations, we hope we can give those in the Gainesville area and beyond more dimension and perspective to the topics that move us all. And before we get started today with our guest, let's introduce the people who are actually talking right now. Um, so let's start with me. <laughs> Hi, my name is Apeksha. Uh, I am a third year marketing major, digital arts and sciences minor from South Florida, A, represent. Uh, I've been involved on campus through the agency at UF. I've been a member of FLA and HLC, currently working with Studio 2058 on advertising. And in my spare time, I like to watch TED Talks and countless TV shows. Um, hey, y'all. I'm going to be the other voice in your ear all year. My name is Zoe. I'm a fourth year biology major, history minor from Land O'Lakes, Florida. Um, some of my involvement includes being an assistant director for Gatorship last year. Um, I was previously an honors ambassador from freshman and junior year. And I'm currently a healthcare quality improvement intern at NICAP. Right. All right. Now, so our first topic here is going to be about activism. And obviously, that's not really specific. It's more in conjunction with our past salon event. Um, but we really wanted to open up the topic of activism to include mental health, um, specifically in regards to college students, as that is our primary audience. So before we get started with the main content of this, I just wanted to provide a little bit of a content warning. Um, so some topics, conversations that do surround mental health can be triggering for some. So please protect yourself. Your mental well-being comes first. Uh, we're going to be providing some resources that are accessible to not just UF students, but the greater listening body towards the end of this podcast. So, that being said, episode one, we have a fantastic first guest, Ms. Valeria Hernandez. Yeah. Everyone's clapping and cheering. And <laughs> right now. Yeah, there's an audience in the background. Oh, right yeah, now. absolutely. Live studio audience right here. Uh, so Valeria gave the talk titled Confessions of an Honor Romantic Depressive at this past TEDxUF event. She was head of the mental health task force that was instituted by student government here at UF. She started a project um, distributing yellow ribbons that represented suicide awareness uh, to the UF student body. And not just that, but she has spoken openly about issues that affect the lives of historically disenfranchised groups, everything from racial minorities, women, the LGBTQ plus community. Unfortunately, she graduated last spring, but is still working every day to share her story and highlight those of others that are often left out of the conversation. Um, that being said, <laughs> uh, we definitely don't know the full story about you, and we'd love to hear more. So uh, tell us your intro. Alrighty, well, like uh, Zoe stated before, my name is Valeria Hernandez. I recently did graduate from UF. Um, adulthood is scary, but <laughs> it happens. Um, I guess a little bit about myself is I'm currently still in Gainesville, so I'm working with uh, the University of Florida as a program assistant for the Brown Center of Leadership and Service. And what I really like about that role is it does help me tie in a lot of my passions in regards to raising awareness for different communities and engaging those communities. Um, trying to think what other fun intro facts about myself <laughs> could be offered. I really love Boku no Hero Academia. <gasps> I um, am trying to start that. Oh I was gosh. about to start that literally yesterday. It will change your life, <laughs> really. Izuku Midoriya is the reason why I managed to like pull through my senior year. So if you're listening really? to this, watch My Hero Academia. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, I'm going to watch it tonight. Like Good. <laughs> I my my friend Erica has been begging me to watch that show. So it's so good. It's so good. Um, you know, like I'm 
a really outgoing person. I love being with people. Um, I am not afraid to like embarrass myself or just like have fun. Um, because my Twitter bio talks about how much I love anime <laughs> and Shonen Jump. Um, so I guess when people think about mental illness, they don't really put me in, in you know, like bipolar disorder in one category. So just kind of wanting to, yeah, raise awareness that like mental illness really doesn't have a face. It doesn't really have um, a set demographic. And I think once you are able to like really fully comprehend that, it makes having like a conversation a lot easier. Mm -hmm. That is something that I've noticed is mm -hmm. this idea of mental health is so, there's a stigma obviously where we think that, oh, there's a certain kind of person that is going through depression, going through anxiety, but we don't realize how prominent it is in our life. Like everyone around you is going through it in some mm -hmm. way, shape or form. So how have you seen it within your life? Not a, obviously as you personally, but have mm -hmm. you seen it more so when you realized your, um, I guess, your symptoms more? Did you realize the people around you were also going through them too? I think when I really started like noticing just how many people were going through it, um, you know, growing up, I thought that it was just me being melodramatic, that I was just, you know, a weenie, that I was very hypersensitive, um, that I just was of weak character because I would react really poorly to things or there would be times where I would be like oh my gosh like life is going so great I'm doing so much I'm doing so good and then I would just hit this block and it's kind of like trying to like force a car to run on empty and you can hear the engine revving but like you're not going anywhere and you're like I was going so fast before what happened what's going on you know just thinking like oh my gosh this is a me problem this is a character flaw I need to work on this and how do I work on this I just have to try harder so study more hours get more involved go the extra mile don't settle for mediocrity and just kind of like I think a lot of the times we've come to glorify this like overexertion and we don't realize how we're draining ourselves until we are that car that's like on zero gasoline and not wondering like yo what happened I'm um, I have no idea what's going on because no one taught me anything about cars. I just kind of went in here and <laughs> drove. <laughs> like, what's a mechanic, <laughs> you know? Um, also, I love using little, like, analogies and symbols that and stuff. No, so. I'm loving oh it. The metaphor, <laughs> I am living for this metaphor. <laughs> you know, like, if no one teaches you anything about cars, you're just going to assume, rip, my car's broken. Mm -hmm. What do I do? Yeah. Um, and so after I was hospitalized my sophomore year, I was just so upset at everyone telling me, you know, I confided in five people and of the five, four of them were like, you can never tell anyone that this happened to you. This is something that you're going to take to the grave with you. This is going to negatively, you know, affect you and the way people view you and your opportunities later on. And I'm like, oh my God, you're so right. Like I, I will never tell a single soul ever as I have like a TED talk three years later. <laughs> um, like I'm, I'm never going to tell anybody. And I kind of sat for a moment and I thought, wait, but there were other college students in that hospital with me, you know, and I know I'm not the only one. And I used to be like, I'm not crazy being self-aware that I had a toxic mentality as to like what I associated mental illness with. I, I used to think I'm, I still try to go to class sometimes. I mean, it's not like I'm failing out of school. It's not like I got into drugs. I, I... I think I'm doing 
fine and I was really not fine. Um, and so I made like a, that was my very, very first time like actively speaking out as like, Hey, I'm speaking out against, against this because this happened to me. And I made a Facebook post and I got so many people just messaging me privately saying, thank you so much for that. Like I struggled through that too. And no one talks about it or my sister struggles through that. And I've been like, you know, so confused about like what was going on or, you know, my mom struggles with this, my dad, um, my cousin, my best friend. And I kind of started realizing every single person on that Facebook feed, like if they're not going through it directly, they either have a parent, a sibling or a friend, like a direct connection to someone that does struggle with it. Mm. And I just wanted to like grab my hair and just like rip it out. I'm like, oh my gosh, we, we spend so much time. Like there's so many people I go through it and you know we're investing in these programs to like teach kids like don't do drugs don't smoke don't don't drink don't engage in sexual activities but we never talk about what does depression look like how do you know that you're having an anxiety attack and how do you deal with that how do you cope with these negative feelings in a healthy way and that kind of like catapulted like the the activism just seeing just exactly how widespread it truly was mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to hit on a point that you mentioned a little bit earlier, the the pressure to succeed that you felt and that a lot of college students feel. Um, and you talked about it specifically in the context of, you know, honor roll students mm-hmm. um, in your TED Talk. So I wanted to talk about involvement cultures, specifically here at UF, mm-hmm. um, and how dangerous that it is to have that sort of mentality. And I think it is very specific to UF. Um, you know, when we talk to other college students, they're like, you're in 15 organizations? Why? How do you have time? And the answer is you don't have time. Um, so, yeah, could you speak a little bit about the toxicity of involvement culture here? Absolutely. Wow. I feel <laughs> if any of my friends are, like, <laughs> listening to this, they're going to be like, you hypocrite. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I definitely got caught up in the involvement hype. And involvement does have a good place in, like, mm-hmm. the college experience. You know, it gives you a community. It gives you a support system. It gives you skills that you can use to market yourself later on in the professional field. But when we kind of go beyond those, like, benefits, it turns into a way to, A, receive some sort of, like, validation, whether it be from yourself, whether it be from the executive board of an organization that you're trying to get into, whether it be from your peers. And it turns into almost a competition over who's the most involved, who has the most titles, who has the most awards. Um, It kind of skews priorities. So I've often seen students who sacrifice sleep to be able to program an event and then they go to class, and then they have meetings from 7 in the morning to 9 p.m., and then during that, like, short little period, they they do homework, and, like, they're not resting. On the reverse side, they neglect their academics, mm-hmm. um, and I think I've seen the former a bit more than the latter, um, especially with honor roll students who part of that validation does come from their academic success. Mm-hmm. Um, so at this point you're sacrificing your physical well-being and, and, and your health and right now you know we're young we're like 18 to 22 year olds but what we don't realize is sleep is so important eating is so important because while it may feel like oh my gosh 
Like, I only got four hours of sleep last night. I was so productive. I did so well. Oh my goodness, your arteries are not going to be saying the same thing when you're 45 (laughs) years old and you have to go and, you know, and, and you have like heart issues from anxiety or you know you're you're very prone to having like a brain aneurysm because of high levels of stress and we don't think about these things because we feel like we're young we're invincible our bodies are going to be like this forever but we have to take care of them um yeah I've noticed you see how people kind of wear it as a badge of honor to mm-hmm. say, oh, I only got four hours of sleep tonight. You know, I, I had like 15 cups of coffee. You know, mm-hmm. I took an energy drink. And people say it like it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And it's so, I mean, it's so common here. You see it everywhere you go. Like every person that you talk to, you say, oh, how are you? They're like, oh, I just got four hours of sleep. And I'm still running, but it's all good. And they say it like it's a good thing, but it's not. Mm-hmm. So where, why do we feel that way? Like, why do you think we do that? I think part of it does tie into this mentality of like high achieving so in high school you know uf is not like a top 10 institution most of the students that come here were at the top of their class compared to a smaller pool it probably wasn't as challenging to stand out right um and then you're suddenly thrown with the best of the best of all the schools in florida of all the schools in different states around the country and you suddenly feel inadequate because you go from being like the valedictorian, to the class president, you know, like the individual, like with the most community service hours in your school, in your county, to this giant pool of 34,000 students who are just as qualified as you. Maybe they're better. Maybe they're, they're not. And it turns into this competition of, oh, my God, I'm not good enough to be here. I need to be better. What else can I do? What do I have to do? So I can feel better. I can feel like I belong here. And then the starts the cycle of, well, my worth begins once I get this position. So for me personally, that kind of started like my journey, just being very honest. The one thing that I wanted more than anything in the world was to give campus tours. Mm. And I'm like, I just want to be in Cicerone's. And once I give my first campus tour, I'll be happy. That's all that I want to do. I just want to give one campus tour. And my sophomore year, I got it. And I'm like, oh, my God, yes, I'm fulfilled. My UF career is fulfilled. And three weeks later, I'm like, okay, I want more. Because yeah. now I started comparing myself to my peers within that organization. And then it became, I want to become president of my sorority. And then it became, I want to be a right scholar. Mm-hmm. I want to, you know, I want to win chapter of the year for my sorority. I want to be in Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. I want to win the Outstanding Student Leader Award. And kind of like, once I get this, I'll be happy. And that's not the case at all. Um, resumes are not antidepressants. And I think yeah. that's the mentality that a lot of people fall into, thinking, once I get this position, I'll be happy. And I'm like, no, sis, you got to focus on <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you got to focus less on what you want to be and focus more on what you want to do. Yeah, It right. also falls back on us living in a society that thrives on productivity. We prioritize having your days scheduled from day until night as opposed to, you know, taking time for yourself. It's, you know, taking time for yourself is synonymous here as lazy. Um, And that, you know, that translates into student life as well, but it also translates into adult life. I mean, you see people working from day to night and they go home and they work some more and students learn from the people around them. And that starts at home. That starts, you know, with mentors, advisors and the like, Mm -hmm. which is unfortunate. Yeah, it's crazy that we live in a never enough society and you see it a lot more with our generation. Mm -hmm. You see it so much today. I know in my personal life, I constantly feel like I'm not doing enough and I can always be doing better. Same thing. I went through the same thing where you get the accomplishments that you've been dreaming about, but then you realize that, no, there's something else that I want. And it's almost Mm -hmm. like an addiction, right? Yeah. It's almost like we're addicted to this idea of being enough, but we can't get there. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you have like noticed a lot in your life? 
Yeah, especially with like a lot of um, my peers and when it comes to mental health and it's kind of like this weird um, dichotomy where, you know, like they're wringing themselves dry, but at the same time they're like, I can't have depression. Look at how much I'm producing. Mm -hmm. Look at how much I'm doing. Yeah. And because a lot of the times these things are like biological and like you have no control over it. But I like to think of it as mental illnesses have the potential of being triggered by certain events. Absolutely. Um, they don't have to be present from the time you're five years old, six years old. You know, a lot of the times there's like this one key event, you know, kind of like when you're playing Jenga and then <laughs> that one thing and then it all comes tumbling down cool. and you're like, yeah. yeah. I also think it's really interesting to uh, see it in the eyes, like what you were saying, how you kept getting things and they were, they were never an antidote to what you were going through. Um, we had that week where both Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain lost their lives to suicide. And it's really interesting to see it coming from an older generation, um, a generation where I think it might have been you actually who put it on a Facebook post where it was, you know, grit your teeth and get on with it. Ignore the outside world. And we're, we're a product of that generation. And I mm-hmm. think it's important to recognize yeah. that despite a very vocally active, you know, like a political generation, we're still suffering from the consequences of that kind of mentality. Um, I did want to talk a little bit more about how students can start these conversations amongst themselves. We're still battling a extraordinary amount of stigmas and that we can talk a little bit about how that shows up in different groups as well, whether mm. it's, you know, socioeconomic status, race, ethnicity, and the like. But just to generally kick it off, how do you think students can really start to have productive conversations about mental health? So um, someone who I care about really much told me that the only time you can really be brave Mm -hmm. is when you're scared. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of these conversations have to stem from individuals who are brave to speak out and not to say that anyone owes people their story or their background or an explanation. Those individuals who do say, hey, this is my story and I'm speaking up for the people that might not have the luxury to. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very important distinction to make. Some people don't have the privilege or the ability to be able to speak out or speak up on their own behalf. So kind of with that mentality, encouraging students that, you know, it's it's a scary topic because a lot of people associate mental illness with failure mm-hmm. and they think you can't live a happy life if you admit to these things. And, you know, my heart really breaks when I think about Anthony Bourdain or um, Robin Williams or mm-hmm. Kate Spade where like you were saying they do come from that generation where it's like you have to suck it up you got to keep going and it'll go away and sometimes it doesn't go away and being vulnerable with yourself to realize hey maybe I need to like talk to somebody about this so kind of showing those students you know Anthony Bourdain did a lot in his life while going through what he was doing imagine if he would have had the adequate resources Mm -hmm. and I'm sure he did He was probably maybe a victim of his circumstances. I'm not sure. I can't speak on behalf of him or his family or his own experiences. But, you know, you have students that are, like, putting out so much. Like, well, I'm doing so much. I don't need it. And I just want to think or encourage them to think, well, think about how much better you would be doing. If you're already doing this much, feeling this way, imagine if you had support. You might be still doing all of this and feeling better. Mm -hmm. Or you might be putting out maybe slightly less but feeling exponentially better. Isn't that worth it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, mm-hmm. I'm so glad we're talking about this because it's true. Like, there are resources out there, mm-hmm. and people always assume that they're not part of that picture, right? Mm-hmm. There's always that assumption that, oh, yeah, mental health is a thing, but I'm not a part of that. 
you know, I, I get sad sometimes or I have panic attacks sometimes mm -hmm. or I have anxiety attacks sometimes and they don't want to include themselves because there's like that fear of, I guess, accepting it or mm -hmm. being a part of it. And it goes back to this idea of people like Anthony Bourdain and Robin Williams where they have the resources, they have the capabilities, but there's that goes back to that stigma mm -hmm. that holds you back even when you do have those opportunities. How do we break that stigma? Like how, where does that start? I think, like I was saying earlier, um, it takes certain people who are like courageous enough and have the ability to speak on it on behalf yeah. of those students who can't. But I think the earlier you start the conversations, the better, because we're not afraid to talk about like, hey, don't smoke cigarettes because they're bad for your lungs. Right. Because from such an early age, that's what we've been conditioned, you know, like, don't be afraid to tell your friends like, hey, man, drugs aren't cool. Um, but why is it so much scarier to come up to your friend and say, hey, I think I think you're depressed and I think we should go see a counselor. Like, I'll go with you. Right. It's so much more scary because it's a taboo subject. I personally think that the university should implement similar to like the what was the class called? What is the good life? Oh, man. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. We should do a how to take care of yourself during your first year mm -hmm. of college yeah. with readings that might revolve around mental health awareness. How do how can you budget your finances appropriately? How do you navigate spaces where you are suddenly the minority, for example, for students that are from South Florida? Mm. And I think those conversations might be a bit more beneficial and impactful for those students. That's actually really interesting because there is a first year Florida class here, but it does it. It focuses a lot more on, you know, resume building mm -hmm. and being able to do an interview. So it'd be cool to see if that would ever be adapted mm -hmm. to be not just more accessible, but gearing students up to be able to live in a more inclusive world that talked about things that were rather taboo. Mm -hmm. um, I also wanted to talk for you know, on behalf of the students who wanted to really get actively involved in creating a change surrounding the stigma, you did that um, by <laughs> by starting off the uh, the mental health task force um, that worked under student government for UF. Um, walk me through the process of how that came about, why you decided to take charge of it. So the way that, it's a funny story how it all kind of played out. Um, I want to say it was the summer of 2000... 16 or 17 I think it was actually yeah I think it was last summer mm -hmm. um or last spring I'm sorry spring 2017 I had seen a news article regarding um a shortage of uh counselors for the counseling and wellness center and you know I myself had been told personally like we can't see you for five weeks mm -hmm. and I'm just like my brain cannot wait five weeks yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um but then I also saw that the university was going to build a new indoor football practice facility. I'm like, yo, what gives? And so me being me, yeah. I sent an email to the dean at the time, the doc, uh, Dr. Escoto, who is the director of the Counseling and Wellness Center, and President Fox. Mm -hmm. I'm just like, hey, can we talk about this? And um, Dean Shaw and Dr. Escoto both agreed to meet up with me and discuss things. So I met up with Dr. Escoto. He talked me through the whole thing. He's just like, there's a shortage of counselors because we don't have the funding for them. Dr. Shaw basically talked me through, like, the dean of students and basically explaining to me the way that donations work and kind of walking me through that process. She's like, it's a lot more difficult to secure donations when they're going towards a salary. It's different mm -hmm. if it's for, like, for example, the, um, the career closet. That mm -hmm. is, like, donation-based from alumni, as is the football practice facility. Mm -hmm. um, but when it's about a salary, it's 
a bit more difficult to it's more difficult to just do it. strange but yeah yeah right yeah. <laughs> um and so I would just talk to Dr. Scott I'm like well how can I help I want to help I think that this is important and we should talk about it and so he gave me a bunch of readings and statistics and he told me about the California school system and how their schools like their public institutions managed to secure 80 counselors for all of their universities so it was about maybe eight new counselors per institution which is pretty good because of money that the state had given to the schools. And so I was thinking, oh, wouldn't it be neat if we did something like that with like other schools? Then began the whole process of the suicide awareness campaign. Um, The task force was like not on my mind at all. I didn't Mm -hmm. even know like if it was going to be a thing. Um, It was a concept that had not yet been created. And so as the fall semester rolls around, I get called in by Smith Myers, who was the student body president last year. And he says, hey, I'd like to talk to you with things currently going on in Senate in regards to, like, needing new counselors and how to secure funding for them. And there were um, disagreements within Senate as to, like, the ways to acquire it. It's like, do, like, what do we do? Do we raise the student fees? Do we lobby the state of Florida? The money is at UF. Do we just try to ask Dr. Mm-hmm. Glover, the provost, to just, like, reallocate those over. funds. Yeah. yeah. And so that was kind of, like, the debate. Like, which route mm-hmm. do we take? So Smith was like, hey, like, I know that you're really active in this. Um, Dr. Scoto had, like, mentioned that you spoke to him. Would you be interested in leading this task force? I'll basically let you choose how you want it to look like. But the ultimately the goal would be, like, how, how do we find um, counselors? How do we secure the funding for them? And I was just like, oh, my gosh, yes. (laughs) I love that. So that's kind of how that came to be. I got really excited. We had applications. We had 10 individuals on the task force, and we just, like, did research on different schools, like, their different resources. And I think ultimately what ended up happening is UF allowed for the hiring of eight new counselors Mm -hmm. um, for the institution, so two new counselors per year. This year, I believe the two that came on board, they're both women. One specializes with um, LGBTQ students. Another Mm -hmm. one specializes in, like, Latinx students. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Like, sometimes it's easier Mm -hmm. for, for those individuals to speak to someone who you don't have to tell your ethnic background, like, how how your culture operates you know like the way a hispanic household works is very different than the way you know like an asian household works or a black home and you know a lot of the times students might find it draining to have to explain that to a counselor that doesn't like identify with like the same culture so kind of removing that barrier and focusing more on the therapy and less on the explanation so i'm like well that's good i'm glad we have those two speaking of diversity and understanding mental health through that. Um, We actually had a question about that. Um, Why is it important for the conversation to include all groups? And more specifically, how do these stigmas change based on, you know, race, ethnicity, gender, um, religion? I think that the way that different like communities view mental illness really does have so many different backgrounds and for example a white home might be more willing to send their child to counseling um, just because demographically speaking um, statistically speaking they are more likely to be able to afford it and like I said I can only really speak on behalf of the Hispanic Latino experience because that's what I grew up 
And I can reference other communities based on what my friends have told me. Me as a very white passing Latina, I'm going to have a very different experience than, you know, like an Afro-Latina, even though we both might have bipolar disorder, just because of those different like identities and, and privileges. One of those things would be access to counselors. I might feel more comfortable talking to a white passing counselor or like a counselor who is white because... I guess societally speaking, I've never been racially profiled because I'm so white passing. Whereas, you know, a beautiful Afro-Latina woman might not have that same experience. Mm -hmm. And so maybe for her, she would have to explain to that white counselor, this is what it feels like to be racially profiled and it's scary. So just kind of like different things like that. Um, The stigma is associated with different communities. So some are more accepting of mental illness as like a valid thing. Others think like no you're just being weak you have to suck it up like I went through it too so you have to go through it it's like a rite of passage that you have to go through Mm -hmm. um others might believe that what you have to do is pray it away Mm -hmm. and be very pious in your faith not to discredit the role of like religion and like the healing process but just kind of like those different circumstances that influence and I think one of the biggest ones would probably be access to financially afford it you know counseling is unfortunately very 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 inaccessible to the average person, Mm -hmm. specifically the average person of color. And as college students, a lot of us are very privileged to be able to have free resources on campus while they may be, you know, limited or we might not have as many as we'd like. You know, once we graduate, it's, it becomes a lot more difficult to find that support and to financially be able to commit to it. So that adds like another barrier. People experience their stress, their levels of depression um, very differently. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a conversation that also needs to be talked about because I think right now mental health care is a very much so viewed through um, a white lens. Yeah, speaking from an Asian American background, it's actually really interesting to kind of contrast the conversation of mental health between you know my white side and my Asian side. Um, you know, being half Japanese, you that's a country that thrives on absolute productivity and absolute high stress levels and it's really interesting to see especially here um, other Asian American students who struggle with wanting to get to the therapy or wanting to just speak out um, and the fear of kind of betraying a certain element of their identity um, which is really interesting and also speaking about religion a little bit it's taboo in a different way in that suicide is a sin in a lot of different religions and if you come from a very heavily religious background how do you how do you take those two things and kind of run with it a little bit yeah especially when it comes to the conversation religion and um ethnicity and race and socioeconomic status but i think one of the biggest ones right now is probably the gender disparity between men women, non-binary folk, trans men, trans women. It's so crucial for all of these groups to be able to have decent access, but then at the same time, it's kind of frustrating because a lot of it is also based like societally. So um, one of the most interesting statistics for me is women have higher rates of suicide attempts, whereas men have higher rates of going through with it. And you wonder like, whoa, why is that? And I think women societally are viewed as, you know, more okay for them to express their emotions. Mm -hmm. It's more socially acceptable for, like, a woman to be sad, whereas it's not acceptable for men to be sad, but it's acceptable for them to be angry. Mm -hmm. And so that sadness 
is more valid is rage. And that's where you see instances of domestic violence, of lethal methods, of wanting to take their own lives. And, you know, like, what are we teaching our boys? Also just needing to, like, educate the general public more on what what does it mean to be non-binary? What does it mean to be trans? What does it mean to be cis? Like, in like how those intersecting identities, you know, like affect like the mental health process. And, you know, especially like going through like such a vulnerable time, um, like puberty, you know, like your cis woman is going to have a totally different experience than a trans woman who feels like this isn't, this isn't right. Needing to like encourage those parents or, you know, like even educators to like recognize those things and provide those students support like need someone to talk to so they don't feel like they're broken so they don't feel like my life is never going to get better might as well just cut it off here I think about that a lot I thought my life was not going to get better after you know like December 2015 I just think of like all the beautiful people that I've gotten to meet the things I've gotten to experience yeah that it's especially prevalent for any age group that identifies mm-hmm. on the LGBTQ plus spectrum oh, as absolutely. well. And seeing how disproportionate those statistics are um, in regards to not just mental health diagnoses, but following through with suicide attempts and mm-hmm. things of that nature. And that being said, we're going to steer into how to recover, um, mm-hmm. how to find, you know, a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel sometimes. Um, so having self-care practices, they differ for everyone. Um, and obviously mental health isn't linear, so you got to adapt as you go. Um, what works for you? Um, what do you find yourself doing when you really need to help yourself out? Uh, me personally, I'm very big on like taking whatever's going up, up like in my brain and just like writing it down. Um, I found that journaling was really productive and a very like healthy coping mechanism for me. It also helped me put my thoughts like in one tangible location and having them like be written as either like words or sentences or pictures made it feel easier to understand and comprehend sometimes also being very like honest with myself and realizing that maybe self-care isn't glamorous all the time sometimes it's not hitting my snooze button when I feel like I can't get out of bed so Mm -hmm. I get up and I shower mm-hmm. or paying my bills on time or, you know, like taking my medicine when I have to. I guess finding like another fine balance between wanting to like be around people, but also taking time to be okay with being on my own. And I think last year I found a lot of beauty in that new self-care practice of like, mm-hmm. you know, like enjoying my own company, which was something that I used to hate. Yeah. I used to hate being alone. And using that as like a new self-care method because now when I'm alone I don't feel anxious or scared it's more of like a okay like we've redefined this Mm -hmm. situation and I feel more comfortable now Mm -hmm. yeah I really like how you added that it's not always glamorous uh sometimes it is forcing yourself to just just do things sometimes yeah I I feel that feel that hard Mm -hmm. yeah and I completely understand finding a way to feel comfortable with yourself and having that time for yourself Because, you know, and I'm sure everyone feels this way, when you're in college and you're so far away from home, you kind of go on the opposite end of the spectrum where you feel like you have to fill your time with other people all the time because you feel like if you're at home alone, then you're not really at home. Mm -hmm. And, And yeah, it like I know I've experienced that myself where I have clung on to my friends and my roommates because I knew that it made me feel better and it 
and it would make me scared to be by myself. Um, and having that, you know, last, not the last semester, but spring semester, I had um, a moment where both of my roommates had been studying abroad. So I was um, uh, very comfortable being by myself. <laughs> I had to basically learn to like, just like take care of myself, which is crazy. You don't think about that. You don't realize that you don't take care of yourself. Like you don't realize those things until you're in a moment where you're by yourself mm-hmm. and you go, oh, wow, like, did I drink water? <laughs> did I, like, have I been hydrated? Like, um, did I like fold my clothes or like, you know, those small things? Mm-hmm. Did I pay my bills? They're, they seem so minute, but they really change how you feel about yourself. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it's not supposed to be glamorous. It's supposed to be a way for you to be comfortable with being by yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that you brought that up. I think it's also important to remember that um, mental health is just as important as physical health. And oh, when yeah. someone is, <laughs> we love a gator shit finger. Well, yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> but you yeah. can't see it, but it's there. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I think it's important to remember that you know when you're when you're sick with the flu, you you stay home, you take medication, yeah. you you do things for yourself, and the same thing applies. Um, you don't have to be diagnosed to take care of yourself. Um, and sometimes it requires, you know, sitting at home, treating yourself, yeah. having a hot chocolate. And sometimes mm-hmm. it takes getting up, getting showered for the day. I didn't realize how much, not even like extensive exercise, but just like yeah. j- just doing anything, like going out for a walk. It changes my mood exponentially. Mm-hmm. Like I'll go from being so stressed out and being so uncomfortable and I'll like, I'll just go on a treadmill and just like, fast walk for an like half an hour and I'll come back and I'm like a completely different mood the and endorphins it, though the endorphins <laughs> you know I learned about this when I was in high school about how the way stress works is so interesting because the stress in your body is really just you know adrenaline right it's mm-hmm. I mean realistically we're supposed to only be stressed when we're put in a dangerous situation right that's the that's the reason we have it in our body is if we're in a fight or flight situation we are able to either fight off what's coming at us or be able to run away and have the energy to do so. But we're in a society where we don't really go through that kind of fight or flight response. And instead, we've translated it into work life where we're sitting at a desk, but we're going through the exact same processes as we would if we were in a fight or flight situation. So then you're in that space where you are having all this adrenaline and all this energy within you that you're supposed to be burning off, but you're not doing that. Literally mm-hmm. just like going for a run, going for a walk. We don't talk about that enough. Like we don't tell people that like it's okay that you feel this way because our society has placed you in a situation where you you're kind of stuck in it. And then they don't give you the resources to say like, "Hey, you know you can like do something to like help you feel better. Mm-hmm. And speaking of resources, <laughs> <laughs> what a segue! <laughs> I wanted to talk as like our final wrap up here, um, why hotlines, why resources are so important, and to kind of give a little bit of context to this. Um, following the suicides of Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade, um, there was a lot of debate all over social media, specifically Twitter, where I saw it, where lots of people were attesting to hotlines not working for them and you know sharing a hotline isn't going to save someone's life that sort of thing and you know what are your thoughts on that um can you talk us through why these resources are still incredibly important yes yes (laughs) short answer yes Yes. (laughs) the answer is yes um yeah i remember being on twitter while all that was happening too and 
oh, I got so mad. <laughs> I got so mad. So, like, full disclosure, like, the the individuals working the, you know, like, um, those hotlines, uh, whether it be for um, victims of domestic abuse, for, um, you know, like, individuals who just went through, like, a sexual assault, for individuals who are going through, like, a crisis with suicide, more often than not, they're volunteers. Um, more often than not, they're not certified doctors or they have training, but they don't have a PhD or a doctorate like associated with it. And people feel like, oh, well, it's it's invalid. It's not real counseling. It's, it's not supposed to be real counseling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's supposed to be used as a tool. Like, you know, for, for example, 911. You're not going to call 911 <laughs> all the time. Mm-hmm. But there's some people who call 911 pretty often. Yeah. Does that mean that you should get rid of 911? Because maybe when you called 911, maybe you felt like the ambulance took way too long. This did mm-hmm. not work. Okay, well, maybe that ambulance, like, unfortunately, it might have taken too long for you. And I'm so sorry. But that ambulance saved about... 300 other people so do we just get rid of it mm-hmm. um and i think the suicide um prevention hotline serves a very similar purpose also just being cognizant like i said earlier not everyone has access to constant therapy or counseling and maybe the hotline is like the only resource that they have in in those moments of crises and maybe sometimes you just need an unbiased opinion you need mm-hmm. someone to hear you out maybe you don't want to like associate a a face or a person you just want to be heard and be validated and valued uh, for people that might feel overwhelmed by talking there's also like the texting um hotline which i think is awesome mm-hmm. yeah just if, if it doesn't work for like a few people i uh it's so hard because i don't want to invalidate like maybe their negative experiences mm-hmm. with the hotline and also like i said they're not doctors yeah um and maybe it, and that's one of the crummy things about the system. Like maybe they caught someone on a bad day and maybe that person was not helpful. But I think the hotline does a lot more good than it does mm-hmm. bad. And I think being able to just like have that number like right off the top of your head, I don't think that's something we should shy away from at all. On the contrary. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And to kind of share some of these hotline numbers and, you know, you have specific resources for the students watching. Uh, watching, pardon, listening. <laughs> um, uh, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. Um, the crisis text line that was mentioned is a phenomenal resource. I've used it before. It takes away, you know, if you're not into talking on the phone, lots of people aren't. Um, you can text HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741-741. And for UF resources, the Counseling and Wellness Center is available. Um, obviously, due to issues in the past, you might not get in as fast as you want, so the importance of these. Um, but if you do want to try and book an appointment, the number is 352-392-1575. And of course, another 24-7 resource would be You Matter We Care. You can email them at youmatter at ufl.edu. That being said, um, unfortunately, we're <laughs> we are out of questions and we've got to wrap up. <laughs> so sad. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for being here. No, uh, we appreciate your insight, your input. We appreciate you very much. Um, and I'm sure the entire viewership does as well. Oh, Listenership. I keep. I'm really, I'm really ruining my life here. <laughs> uh, we also want to thank the journalism school at Weimar Hall as well as Rob Harder uh, for helping us put this together um, and putting future episodes together. Hashtag podcast. And if you enjoyed this, 
at all. Um, <laughs> please tune in for more episodes that are going to be coming up. They'll follow other topics. Um, we'll come back to activism, but we've got a lot more to cover. Um, follow TEDxUF on all your usual social media to keep up with upcoming salon events, any other updates that are coming in regards to the TED Talk event at the end of the year. Thank you for listening. Um, Ipeksha wrote, thank you for embarking on this thought journey with us, which oh, I think is rather... <laughs> it's either very cheesy or will blow your mind, okay? There is no in-between. I think it's rather mind-blowing. But yeah, <laughs> thank you so much. Hope you enjoyed.